Our conversation about the year-long miners' strike in 1984-85 is a chance to reflect on an epic defeat for the British trade union movement. Margaret Thatcher's victory changed, perhaps forever, British industrial relations. Her crushing of the once mighty National Union of Mine Workers hastened privatisation in the wake of the breakup of the nationalised industries. It also heralded the introduction of employment laws, which some claim are the most flexible in Europe, but which others consider have left many British workers at a disadvantage. Joining me, Nicholas Jones, are Lord Kinnock, the former Labour Party leader, Neil Kinnock, and the former trade union leader, John Edmonds, who were both caught up in the strike, a dispute over pit closures, which I reported for BBC Radio News in my role as a Labour and industrial correspondent. When the strike began in March 1984, Neil Kinnock had only been Labour Party leader for a matter of months. John Edmonds was then a national officer for the General and Municipal Workers' Union, of which he later became the General Secretary. His union represented workers in the coke ovens in Yorkshire, which needed coal supplied by the National Coal Board. The GMB, like the NUM, was affiliated to the Labour Party. And there were, therefore, these close links between union leaders and Mr Kinnock. First, we just need briefly to wind back. We must revisit the Labour Party's failure to make a comeback in the 1983 general election, following Margaret Thatcher's victory in the Falklands War of 1982. After Michael Foote's defeat at the hands of the Conservative Party, I well remember how union leaders like the late Clive Jenkins said the party had to jump a generation. Neil Kinnock, you were seen as the ideal future leader. You were elected leader at the Labour conference in October 1983. So you'd been party leader for only five months when the pit strike began. And as we now know from Mrs Thatcher's 1984 cabinet papers, the die had already been cast. Ian McGregor had been appointed chairman of the National Coal Board in August 1983, and that September he told Peter Walker, the Secretary of State for Energy, that he had it in mind to close 75 pits. Neil Kinnock, did you have any inkling uh, on your election as Labour Party leader of the scale of pit closures that the coal board had in mind? I think most people who took an interest in the subject of the mining industry had a pretty good idea that there was one fixed objective in the mind of the Conservative government and that became even more certain after the appointment of Ian McGregor as chairman of the National Coal Board and that was to secure mass closures of the British uh, coal mines. Uh, there were guesses about the figures. Some said in excess of 60, some said in excess of 90. But what was absolutely certain was that British coal was about to be engaged in a fight for its life. And the only question in my mind was how we could best present the very positive case for coal as a major British energy source and how we could uh, fight any political battle, industrial battle indeed, uh, that was necessary to withstand the scale of the closures. Mining is an extractive industry. Closures were bound to take place. That was never in any doubt or dispute. But the speed and the scale 
of the closures were fundamental to the issue. Now, as a South Wales MP, uh, you obviously had close links to the South Wales National Union of Mine Workers. Um, did you think then that you should have known that this confrontation was perhaps coming and that perhaps there was a strategy that you had in mind to deal with that uh, uh, possibility? Everyone knew that the uh, conflict was coming. Uh, while we didn't realize, of course, that it would take a physical form, we thought it would be a fairly conventional contest between uh, established trade unionism with its traditions of peaceful picketing uh, and the Tory government that was bent upon changing the law but also changing the industrial landscape and uh, relieving, in their terms, the exchequer of the obligations to make investment in this fundamentally important energy industry. So all that was very clear, all that was known, and indeed in early November, within a month of becoming elected Labour Party leader, uh, I was elected on October the 2nd, 1983, uh, thus begun my midlife crisis, and uh, within a month I was having a meeting with Arthur Scargill, the then president of the National Union of Mine Workers, in my office in Westminster, a long meeting in which we discussed the prospects for coal, discussed the means of presenting the case for coal, and I thought that I'd got uh, a degree of support and engagement in the proposition that I was putting to Scargill that we should engage as a movement, just, not just the NUM, but spearheaded by the NUM, as a movement, we should engage in familiarizing the public with the absolutely basic significance of coal in every community in the country. And that would mean people from the coal mining industry, uh, men and their wives, going to the market towns, if you like, and to the suburbs and to the center of London, presenting themselves as they are, as decent people who wanted a future for themselves, their industry, their community, and making the case in the context of the significance of sustaining their industry for everybody in the United Kingdom. Did you think that uh, Arthur Scargill was on the same wavelength as you, that he saw that this was an argument uh, and it was all, all about, or should have been all about, winning public support and putting influence on the government of the day? Certainly when that meeting concluded and it went on for a couple of hours, uh, I had the very, very strong impression uh, that was confirmed by Scargill's attitude and thinking about the way in which we should seek to deploy people, that he was in accord with the idea of fighting and winning the battle for coal uh, well away from the coal mining communities in the places that had never seen a colliery, never heard the noise of it, never smelt the smell of it, but uh, had to become familiar with how vital it was to their lives, their livelihoods, their standard of living. Well, let's just uh, ask John Edmonds now. Uh, your union, the General and Municipal Workers, um, as I've explained, you had links with the coal industry, you represented coke workers. Uh, here's Neil Kinnock making it abundantly clear um, that in South Wales at least there was um, a sense um, that uh, uh, there were decisions, vital decisions to be made about the future of the coal industry. What was your reaction as a as a young union leader? 
Well, the first thing was that uh, I'd been the union's energy national officer for 10 years. So I knew about electricity and gas. And the strongest feeling was that really from the time that Margaret Thatcher became prime minister, the electricity establishment, the management, were, I think moaning on is probably the best expression about the possibility that they were going to be pushed into the front line of what everybody thought was going to be a conflict between the, uh, uh, well, the Conservative Party in government uh, and the NUM. So there was no surprise about all of this. Uh, I mean, there were two dimensions here. There was the dimension about how can we present coal? I mean, my own union had a lot of people working in coal-fired power stations, so we wanted coal to be presented in a very positive way. But of course, the other dimension was highly political. Uh, everybody knew that Thatcher wanted to get involved in a payback dispute for what had happened in the past, all to do with what Heath had done, Nick Ridley's um, activities in sort of going around picking up information mainly from the electricity industry and so on was pretty well known in the energy world. So this was a two-dimensional dispute and there's no doubt that the politics was more important than the energy. And are you now looking back, uh, we've just heard Neil Kinnock's explanation of how he was trying to build a bridge, if you like, with Arthur Scargill, the leader, uh, the president of the National Union of Mine Workers, and mount a public campaign. What do you think of that revelation and what do you think the tactics should have been for the Well, I, um, that would have been extraordinarily welcome uh, to my members because there was a general feeling. I mean, uh, we've been through all sorts of arguments about uh, the environmental effects of burning fossil fuel and so on. Um, and to have uh, coal presented in a better way would have been very good, frankly, for, for the GMWU as it was then. Very good for our members. So, I mean, we would have been very happy to be part of the campaign. Let's uh, now go back, uh, Neil Kinnock, uh, to the pivotal position of South Wales, because, of course, that secret plan uh, by Ian McGregor, that revealed, you see, there were 28 pits at the time that we're talking about in South Wales in 84. And uh, there was no doubt that under the McGregor plan that was uh, announced in the September of the 83, uh, he wanted to close two-thirds of the pits. But, of course, we also have to feed in the history of this, that there had been a near dispute in uh, 1981 and 1983, uh, when there had been the possibility uh, of industrial action. So what I suppose we, we want to sort of think about is, did you think uh, then in that autumn uh, that Mrs. Thatcher might back off, or did you actually sense that this really was or could possibly become a fight to the finish? The background is very, very important uh, for several reasons. It includes the fact that in repeated national ballots, the uh, vote for action uh, had not been secured, that even in South Wales, there were a majority, a bare majority of lodges that had been against taking industrial action, and that there was a general feeling that uh, because of the men's own knowledge of their own collieries, that several pits were in jeopardy, certainly if there wasn't a very substantial investment program. Now, all that being the case, everybody knew that it was no good going blindly into an industrial dispute. The case had to be made, 
not only for the pits that remained viable, but for the pits that were at the margin and could benefit from additional investment. So that was why it was essential to put the positive case for coal, and also why uh, action other than an effort to try and pull everybody out on strike was the advisable course, uh, not least because I had the feeling that if the campaign was undertaken and the ground was prepared, two possibilities would then become more real. One is that if uh, people wanted to undertake token action in order to demonstrate the strength of feeling in the coal fields, there would be a much stronger chance of a mandate for that. But secondly, there would be much greater sympathy, and I mean with a capital S in the rest of the trade union movement, as well as amongst the general public, for any action that the miners were taking. So my view was substantially based on the realities of what we knew could happen to coal and also a comprehension of the attitude in the pits towards uh, a fight to the death. And it's in those conditions, those circumstances in which I thought that it was better to engage in broad campaigning that would isolate the government and expose the short-termism of their attitude towards the coal industry rather than go head on. And of course, when the work to rule started in the collieries in, led by South Wales in late November, this was a sort of halfway house. Uh, it dramatized the situation in the coal industry without uh, inflicting on the men and their families a complete loss of income. Uh, and at the same time, it would re result in a reduction in coal stocks. Do you think that the South Wales NUM, uh, your own father had been a miner, you'd got very close links with them. Do my you think? grandfathers and my uncles, yes. So and members of my own family were still in the coal mining industry in 1984. And do you think that they would have joined the Labour Party in that sort of campaign? Also, yeah, I've, I've no doubt at all. Indeed, I have no doubt about the lodges in my constituency. Uh, for a variety of reasons, I'd been very close to the National Union of Mine Workers, uh, apart from the industry itself, because of my political engagement. And they'd been a very radical, progressive trade union. They'd supported many causes, anti-racism, uh, a variety of political campaigns, and so on. And I'd shared platforms. So these people, the leadership of the NUM, both at the, uh, at the Welsh level, but also in my own constituency, were close comrades. They're people who'd voted for me in my selection back in 1969. So they were family in many ways, and consequently, uh, I talked to them about the way in which we should conduct affairs, and given that some of them led lodges that had voted in favor of strike action, and others hadn't, though the margins were pretty tight in South Wales, they said, yep, if we can find a way of impressing opinion outside the coal fields 
and isolating Thatcher, let's try that. Now, look, we're going to come to March 1984 in a moment, but before we do, let's just return to John Edmonds. You've explained how you had knowledge, because of your members, of what was going on in the power stations. Did you know then uh, of the lengths to which the Conservatives had gone to prepare for a possible dispute? I mean, now we know uh, phenomenal steps were eventually taken. Well, it's very, very difficult to hide coal stocks And the coal stocks at most of the uh, coal-fired power stations were historically enormous. These were at record levels. Um, I I don't know how anyone could possibly miss the fact that the preparations were substantial. And there were all the rumours about what uh, the Conservative government was trying to do. But the coal stocks were there. Uh, the, The amazing thing was that the NUM national leadership seems so very uninterested in getting intelligence about what was happening in the power stations. And of course, the power stations never figured as prominently in the dispute as anybody with any sense would have expected. But more of that later. But the coal stocks, I mean, they were just enormous. Well, Well, let's give you the figures on the coal stocks, and they were obvious to everybody. Uh, I'm still a member of UNITE. I was then a member of the Transport and General Workers Union. We had power stations in South Wales that substantially depended on South Wales coal. And the officials and lay officials in the power stations were telling me, and they did indeed right throughout the strike, I used to have the figures by the week of what the stocks were in the power stations, And what we knew was by the time the strike really got underway in late March, early April of 1984, whereas the usual figure for coal stocks uh, at that time of the year in Britain was around about 38 to 40 million tonnes. The previous year it had been 39 million tonnes. In 1984, in late March, there were 49 million tons of coal on the ground in the power stations and some at pit heads and otherwise distributed around so that there was a 25% increase on what since the Second World War had been the typical coal stocks in the late winter, early spring of any year. So it was obvious that all kinds of preparations had been undertaken. And indeed, the coal stocks in early 1984 of nearly 50 million tonnes would have been even higher had it not been the effect of the work to rule that had been going on since November. Well, you've painted the run-up very clearly to the decisions that were taken in the march. Uh, We had the coal board announcing uh, the closures, for example, the Corton Wood closure that was seen as such an important trigger. And it's actually a mistake. And the the coal board confirm um, their figure of wanting 20 pit closures and 20,000 redundancies. Of course, they weren't letting on the secret uh, that we now know uh, that actually McGregor had actually already had in it in mind to close 75, but the important point was the strike begins area by area. Yorkshire starting, then Scotland, and it spreads throughout the coalfields. What did you, uh, what was happening to you? What did you think as the news came in uh, that this was actually escalating coalfield to coalfield? Well, first of all, of course, I was in the eye of the storm as the leader of the Labour Party. 
even if I hadn't had the close connections to the coal industry and the power industry that I did, I nevertheless would still have been in that position because it was extremely convenient of the Conservatives and the Conservative press to represent me as someone who on a good day had no control over the Labour movement and on a bad day was Scargill's puppet. Uh, and of course, uh, that certainly wasn't true. And what I uh, believed and said to Scargill was that uh, disaster was impending that people with huge bravery were taking, literally taking their lives in their hands, uh, withdrawing their labor, talking other pits out in every coal field, incidentally, right across the United Kingdom because of the sympathy they were managed to provoke when they went to the canteens on the pitheads from South Wales. And it was gathering, and the impression was given to some that this was a monumental uh, development that was building to a crescendo. I knew that that crescendo couldn't come for a variety of reasons, which we'd probably go into. And what I was astounded by, and in fact it delayed my reactions, was that when a special NUM conference was called for Easter of, it was an early Easter that year, of 1984, with a proposal before it to change the rule on the mandate required for a national strike from 55% to 50% plus one vote. The automatic implication for me and for many, many others, including in the trade union leadership outside the NUM, was the intention was at that special conference to pass the uh, amendment to the constitution of the NUM and then to put a vote uh, seeking to have a ballot on a national strike. Now, of course, the first thing did happen. And when I heard on the evening of that conference, I happened to be in North Wales campaigning, when I heard on that evening that there'd been no vote and no call for a vote uh, on uh, a national strike, I realized at that moment that the whole thing was completely guaranteed to end in disaster. I never assumed, of course, it would be 12 months but nevertheless, without a national ballot, I was absolutely certain that the miners could not secure the solidarity of other trade unions, uh, the necessary respect, civil and political respect of the wider public, and that we would be engulfed in a conflict uh, to which there could not conceivably be a victorious outcome uh, for the miners and the campaign to save the coal industry. So it was as, as clear to you as that, was it, that this was a course that was going to end in disaster? Yeah. And it's at that point, and this is an eternal regret, regret, that I will have to my dying day. At that point, I know I should have said, in my own soul I know I should have said, there must be a national ballot, this strike must be legitimised, we must have the unity of the miners' trade union and the trade union movement, and on that basis, the, the ballot must be held. Now, two things would have happened if I'd done that. Uh, the first thing is, of course, I would have been in a much more easily protected political position. That isn't what mattered to me particularly, but in retrospect, of course, that could and would have been significant. The second thing, and the reason for my hesitation, however, was that when the men that I knew best 
had, with enormous courage and sacrifice by their families, been on short wages by that time for four months. And when they were fighting for their lives, and when they were already suffering the moral impact of that set of circumstances, I couldn't and didn't want to kick them in the teeth by saying, what you've been doing is wrong, and you must, for your own sake, have a national ballot, or you are doomed to failure. Now, of course, that would have been a terrible demoralization. A side product of that, and this was constantly in my mind from the time of Cortonwood, was that since I could not foresee a positive outcome to this dispute in those circumstances, then I didn't want Scargill to be able to blame the Labour Party or the Labour leadership or me, because I would have been the target, for what ultimately was going to be, in my view, the failure of the tactic that he was employing, of trying to secure a 100% support for the strike by picketing out individual collieries. And I thought that that was doomed, uh, and I didn't want him to be able to say that, but for the leadership of the Labour Party, we could have won this strike. And uh, the one positive I can take out of the whole trauma of that 12 months and the dreadful suffering inflicted on the miners and the mining communities is that there are not but a handful of people who were active in the trade union and mining trade union movement at that time who have ever accused me uh, of being the cause of defeat. People know that that wasn't the case and they know that the basic reason for the defeat was the ruthlessness of the Thatcher government and the obsessive arrogance of Arthur Scargill in conducting the strike in the way he did and abusing the loyalty of the finest part of the labor movement. But, but looking back now, with 30 years hindsight, uh, are you actually saying perhaps you should have stood up to Arthur Scargill and, and demanded that battle? My life would have been easier if I'd done it publicly. I did it privately, of course. Did you speak? I, I mean, oh, the, the, newspa the newspapers say, of course, there was a hotline between you oh, and I, Arthur. I told, well, hotline, yeah. There was a normal telephone. Uh, and uh, uh, I think, I don't think there was ever an occasion when he refused to take my calls or anything like that, and I certainly never refused to take his. But uh, the... Uh, I told him directly. Uh, maybe one mistake I should have, uh, uh, I made, and that was I maybe should have gone to speak to the NUM executive and said in front of them to Scargill, if you continue in this fashion and don't find a different way of conducting affairs, then you uh, are doomed because I knew, first of all, privately there were individuals in that NUM executive who were sympathetic to the view I was taking, but because of suasion of various kinds and the desire that they shared with me not to be held liable for Scargill's ridiculous, absurd, disastrous er errors, uh, that they kept their silence. And maybe they would have been provoked 
into speaking up had I gone to the NUM executive and said, listen, Arthur, this is the reality and you cannot escape it. And uh, even if that hadn't been the case, at least I would have articulated it in a way that was guaranteed to become public. Let's just pause for a moment and bring in John Edmonds again. Uh, you were the national officer then of the General Municipal Workers Union. Uh, we've heard Neil Kinnock explaining so clearly how he was absolutely convinced that without this uh, national pithead ballot, it wouldn't be possible to get support uh, from the rest of the trade union movement. Was it as clear to you as it was to Neil Kinnock at that time? Well, it, it was a bit more confused than that because... I remember a conversation I had with uh, the uh, General Municipal Workers, then General Secretary, David Basnett, running up to the, uh, uh, the Easter conference of the NUM, and David was absolutely convinced that this was going to be the prelude to a national ballot. Uh, that's, that's what he told me. Now, of course, uh, I wasn't uh, privy to some of the internal discussions of the TUC, but he was absolutely certain that that was what was going to happen. And that meant that everything was going to change. I mean, there had been tremendous uh, discomfort, I think, at the professional level in the trade union movement about the way this had been conducted. Because, I mean, you don't need to have a detailed knowledge of the fuel industries to know that a dispute that starts in the summer, or the beginning of the summer, with the summer in front of you, is perhaps not going to put as much pressure on the government as one that starts in the autumn. And that was, that was really weird. Uh, the other thing was that in view of the productive levels of the Midlands coal fields, um, it seemed that that was going to have to be a central objective. And they seemed to have no strategy for dealing with that problem. Now, it then became highly politicised and so on. So although there was enormous sympathy for the NUM members, there was a big question mark amongst the sort of, if you like, the trade union professionals about what the hell are they doing it this way for? Um, so that was the, the, and then of course there wasn't going to be the ballot. We were all convinced that a ballot at that stage, perhaps not earlier, but at that stage would have produced a majority. And from then on that question was sort of hanging in the air. Can I ask you about that? Uh, Lord Kinnock, did you think that it would, A, have been possible to have got a majority, and secondly, what about the hindsight that we now know that actually McGregor wanted to close 75 pits? Do you think if that had been known, that might have led to a national pithead ballot uh, and a majority vote? Two things are apparent, and they are strengthened rather than created by the hindsight that is now available from the Cabinet papers. The first thing is, the miners, a large proportion of them in several coal fields, having been working to rule since November, and others seeing the confrontation as it had built by early April, would have been much more inclined in those circumstances to say, yes, we know that our future depends upon the strength that we can get for unity. So I think in those circumstances, the chances of getting a much higher proportion voting for strike action would have been greater. It may not have been a big turnout. Miners might have abstained rather than taking a decision 
about the future of other people's jobs, which became a substantial issue in the strike, of course. But for those who voted, then I think it quite probable that several coal fields would have voted yes. And if other coal fields had had uh, small majorities for no, then, of course, there would have been a much greater chance for securing uh, their eventual support. Now, eventual is very important in this context because the one possibility utterly dismissed by the Scargill leadership from the outset was any form of negotiation with the National Coal Board or the government. And that meant, first of all, be bewilderment in the rest of the trade union movement, which exists to negotiate. And you try to arrange conditions in which uh, the negotiations are conducted from the best position of strength you can secure, which means, uh, obviously, uh, either you negotiate and then go on strike because of the breakdown in negotiations, or you go on strike in order to dramatize and intensify the dispute, and then negotiations come out of it. The dismissal by Scargill of any form of negotiation in any circumstances whatsoever um, meant that everything was distorted. Had he, therefore, been seeking to conduct a national ballot on the basis of wanting a mandate to negotiate and get that mandate out of a strike ballot, then, of course, things would have been very, very different, indeed entirely different. But there was none of that strategic thinking. There was none of that generalship. There was none of that literal trade unionism. What there was was the determination to conduct a woeful political contest. And in a political contest, of course, uh, then uh, there can ultimately only be one winner. One other point is very important. John's point about, yes, I'll use the word, the idiocy of beginning a strike just when demand for coal is going down seasonally at the end of the winter, spring, early summer, is an understanding of the folly of doing that should have been burned into the hearts of the miners' leadership if in nobody else's because of what happened in 1926. In the general strike starting on May the 1st, 1926, for nine days, there was huge support right across all trades and industries in uh, Britain. Eventually, the TUC General Council sued for peace and only the miners stayed out for seven months and they stayed out through what's been called the angry summer. Now that is in the consciousness of anybody and everybody who knows about the history of coal mining and coal mining trade unionism in the United Kingdom. If you are going to have a strike in the coal mining industry, legitimate or illegitimate, official or unofficial, balloted or not balloted, you do not start at the end of March. But Arthur Scargill believed he was leading the shock troops of the trade union movement, didn't he? Uh, we've just heard uh, from John Edmonds about the coal stocks, but of course we've also heard your description of how the strategy was one aimed at picketing out uh, the working collieries. Now, let's just look at the actual conduct 
of that uh, early period in the strike because, of course, within a few days, Margaret Thatcher uh, has determined that this is going to be or is going to be presented as a, uh, a, a clash between the rule of law and the rule of the mob. And she issues this edict to chief constables that they've got to, that they must stiffen their resolve. And of course, it's within days uh, that we see pickets being stopped, moving up and down the country. They're being stopped from Kent, going through the Dartford Tunnel, coming down from uh, Yorkshire to Nottinghamshire. What did you think in those beginning weeks when you saw what was unfolding, this, this trial of strength, this, uh, the shock troops out at the pit heads? Three things were clear. First of all, at the behest of the government, because it could come from nowhere else, we had a national police force for the first time in British history, including in wartime. And the chief constables, many of them with great reluctance, I have to say on their behalf, uh, had perforce to accept the fiat from the Home Office, which we now know came directly from Margaret Thatcher, uh, which involved, for want of a better phrase, to crack down on pickets and the movement of pickets. That led to the second reality, which was a degree of curtailment of the basic freedom in a democracy to move wherever you want to, to go wherever you want to, for whatever purposes that are legitimate purposes, uh, that, were, that was severely constrained. And of course, in the very nature of uh, men bent upon a purpose of picketing, coming into contact with the resisting police force, then the, uh, the great good fortune is that there wasn't much more violent conflict in those circumstances. And the third uh, thing that became apparent is that yet another component of the Ridley plan, which had been exposed a few years earlier, named after a very close colleague of uh, Thatcher's, Nicholas Ridley, a junior minister, very right-wing member of the Conservative Party, who had put together a set of proposals, ingredients for the conduct of the government in a national strike. Yet another one of those components of the Ridley plan, uh, the organization of the police force, had come into effect. So even by early April, we had knowledge of the coal stocks. We had the police acting in the way that had been proposed and outlined by uh, Nicholas Ridley. McGregor had been appointed as chairman of the coal board in place of Derek Ezra, who certainly wouldn't have had anything to do uh, with this form of, uh, of uh, conspiracy with the government uh, and doing the government's bidding. So three of those very important uh, components were in place. And then there was the law, uh, not so much the anti-strike laws, as the application of the common law by the police force to prevent or impede the movement of people. And even more important than that in some ways, the 1981 social security legislation, which meant that people on strike and the families of people on strike had virtually no entitlement whatsoever to any form of social benefit. Now you put those things together and it's obvious that uh, to speak of the Thatcher government as an embattled, aggressively embattled 
government is to use those terms correctly. Uh, John Edmonds, just uh, give us your uh, indication of how the rest of the union movement was was, was seeing what was unfolding. Um, Neil Kinnock has, has said he accepts that um, Thatcher w- was able to present this as a as a, a to the public as being between the rule of the mob and the rule of law. What was the view within the rest of the union movement as this was unfolding? Well, it changed um, between uh, the <coughs> the spring and the autumn. Uh, there was a strong feeling, perhaps fueled by a great deal of hope, that in spite of everything, uh, the NUM might win. Uh, And that was what was comforting uh, everybody. Of course, from the autumn onwards, it changed, and it changed very rapidly, and there was a fatalism which was terribly demoralising. But the other thing was, of course, we were kind of, the rest of the trade union were being attacked in the media by Arthur, particularly by Arthur, for not supporting him. Now, this was a bit weird because uh, none of us had actually been approached by the NUM to support him. There had been discussions with the uh, railway unions, and of course the railway unions gave a good deal of support, uh, mostly unasked for, actually. Uh, But the uh, we were being slagged off using the, the vernacular for not supporting him. We hadn't really been asked, but there's another point here which is sort of deeply embedded in the mind of every trade union official, and that is if you can't win a dispute on your own, you can't win it. Because once you start relying on other people to win it for you, of course they will have their own interests, and they might well settle early, as happened in a number of many, many cases and happened a couple of times during the miners' dispute. But effectively, you are relying on them to run your strike for you. Now, there's an obvious, a deep contradiction in this. Arthur wasn't going to let anybody run the dispute, yet he wanted the support of other unions who would understandably ask for some control over the strategy, if you could find the strategy. So that was um, the sort of, if I can put it, the professional's idea at a different level, of course. Uh, a lot of trade unionists were trying to help miners. We were putting up miners. We were you know, giving uh, support to the pickets. Money was being delivered to the miners in all sorts of ways. I uh, mentioned before Jimmy, Jimmy Knapp going off with two caseloads of money, just money, to deliver at a service station uh, on the motorway. I, all that was happening. But deep inside all of our minds was, why on earth doesn't he do it differently? I mean, one of the last thing I'll say is, because we had so many members in power stations, we offered to Arthur and to Peter Heathfield the opportunity to talk about which of the stations was strategically most important. And we never had any meetings and we have had any show of interest. What we were told was that they would only meet us if we agreed to shut down the power stations. Now, apparently you shut down the power stations, you start counting the dead bodies, of course, because our whole society is run on electricity. But that was it. There was no dialogue and we could have told them an enormous amount. I mean, we could have told them early on about the importance of the Trent Valley power stations, which they never seemed to realise. So there were all sorts of dislocations here, but underneath it all, 
a deep hope that in spite of everything, the NUM would win and a deep hope that the miners wouldn't have to suffer any more. Uh, Neil Kinnock, turning back to you, uh, of course, at that period, uh, you've mentioned your own agonising over whether or not you should have come out and um, said that a ballot should have been held right from the off. But you were still, weren't you, as those months went on, you were still publicly, or you were beginning publicly to say there should be a ballot, not least because that would sort out whether or not the Nottinghamshire miners, who hadn't ever been given a chance to vote, would be able to vote and express their opinion. Yes, by June, uh, I was making it clear publicly that uh, I was strongly in favour uh, of a ballot, but the main thrust of the argument I was making publicly uh, to the Prime Minister and Prime Minister's questions, in debates, in speeches, in every possible way, was that the case for coal was being obscured by the conduct of the strike. And it was the case for coal that was fundamentally important to the whole country in energy and in economic terms. And of course, that was the great misfortune. But John has spoken about the contradiction of Scargill positions. His whole place in this is riddled with contradictions. One being, you've already heard, that he wanted the cooperation and close collaboration of the rest of the trade union movement, but without any form of contact with the leadership of the trade union movement. He wouldn't go to the TUC General Council. He wouldn't talk to them. He wouldn't negotiate with them. He wouldn't come before them with a strategy. He treated them with complete contempt and said so from an enormous number of platforms. Now, in addition to that, of course, here's the man who uh, was uh, reluctant or unwilling to involve the trade union movement more broadly, the TUC, on the grounds that they betrayed the miners in 1926. And yet the same guy was willing to completely forget the fundamental lesson of 1926. And that was the need to maintain solidarity and not to have a coal mining strike that lasted over the summer. And it goes on right through the tale. And fundamentally, the contradictions arise from the fact that Scargill had talked himself into, thought himself into, being in a, a messianic position where only his judgment and his objective of winning uh, a political battle against the government of the day uh, was the means by which the future of the coal industry and the British trade union movement and socialism and everything else could be secured. He really had talked himself into that. And the unfortunate thing is that people who would have offered him wider counsel on the NUM executive, for instance, were either marginalized or ignored or intimidated into keeping their counsel, partly because, as I said, they didn't want uh, to be available to uh, be blamed by Scargill. Uh, if only I'd got real support from the miners executive, we could have won this struggle, that kind of excuse. Uh, but also because of the fact that they were witnessing the daily desperate sacrifice of communities in the coal fields, and they didn't want to give the impression that they were weakening in their resolve when the men and their families were enduring awful privations. And indeed, it wasn't until the early months of 1985 
that eventually the South Wales Miners Executive said this has got to stop and had the courage to put forward their proposal which brought the end of the strike. Yeah, but of course before we got to then, to that point, we had the massive confrontations, didn't yes. we, for example, at Orgreave. Yeah. Now, the reality was, of course, that the police operation was succeeding. It was yes. managing to contain the yeah. picketing yeah. to a large degree. And it struck me that the Labour Party, and you as the Labour Party leader, you were caught in a trap yeah. because you were being, on the one hand, accused of endorsing uh, mob rule because you weren't criticising the police enough, uh, and as you say, uh, the news media were treating you um, in a position where you couldn't win whatever you said. Sure. I, and that was something I had to put up with. Uh, that went with the territory. It's no good me getting upset or distracted by that. What I did know, however, was uh, the more that the right-wing press and indeed the Conservative Party was able to focus on this, that uh, I was supporting the mob against the forces of order, uh, the more they were able to distract from the fundamental cause of the dispute and the condition of the coal industry. And that's what bothered me most, this way in which the real issues at stake in the coal mining dispute were being almost entirely obscured by the nightly film of confrontations between pickets and police ranks and the way in which the great majority of people in the general public in those circumstances, however sympathetic they are towards the, uh, the men who are demonstrating, will only tolerate that and only sustain that sympathy up to the point where they don't see uh, a bleeding policeman's head. What's part of your difficulty, though, looking at you personally in the Labour Party, that the left were becoming more oh, vocal? I mean, right. we have to remember, don't we, Tony Benn had just re-entered Parliament um, in the March of 84. He'd won the Chesterfield by-election. You were, of course, lining up for a possible confrontation with the militant tendency. How much was the left uh, acting as a restraint somehow on you? The left, or I more accurately would describe him as the ultra-left, in the Labour movement, uh, and of course in the Labour Party, were at their infantile worst. Uh, I had, I'd just give you an instance, the uh, militant-led Labour Council in Liverpool were engaged in an absolutely no-win contest uh, over their utter failure to set uh, a rational budget. And, of course, that was bound to result in the virtual collapse of uh, finance for Liverpool and the services on which people in that city depended. And so, consequently, I was determined to take these people on and defeat them. It would have been foolish to have tried to do it in the autumn of 1984, when the sentiments of the Labour movement generally, in including very sane people, were completely absorbed by their concern with the miners' strike and the civil rights issues and energy issues and economic issues and everything else coming out of it. So if I'd taken on militant in those circumstances, uh, I would have, if I was lucky, not have got a hearing. It could have been much worse and led to uh, the effective defeat of the leadership and made it impossible for me to try and steer the ship in any shape or form. So they came to me 
in the, uh, in the months of that strike and said that I was missing a great historic opportunity, uh, which as a socialist I should comprehend. And the great opportunity was that the level of consciousness achieved because of the miners' strike and the way in which they in Liverpool were prepared to be a vanguard, note the word, for uh, challenging the government meant that if I gave the word, there would be a national strike that would result in the downfall of the Thatcher government. I said to them that uh, I heard what they said. There was more likelihood of me riding backwards down Lime Street in Liverpool, naked on the back of a rhinoceros, <laughs> than giving in to that kind of absolute stupidity. Now, we must just briefly uh, bring back John Edmonds, because, of course, I mean, you're describing the pressure that you were under to call a national strike. There was, wasn't there, a lot of pressure on the, from the left of the trade union movement uh, to back up the very forces that Neil Kinnock was trying to contend with? Yeah, there was there was pressure. I mean, uh, there's no doubt about that. And, and similar arguments were were made. But of course, the contradiction in the argument is pretty obvious. Um, the miners would have stood a good chance of winning the case if they'd have argued for fuel, for coal, and for an energy policy based on our historic resources. But directly, they start arguing the politics, and Arthur was keen to do that at every possible occasion. Then uh, immediately, it's on Thatcher's ground, because Thatcher's argument was, this is not an industrial dispute. This is a political dispute to overthrow the government. And so the trade union movement is under pressure, but uh, most of us could understand quite easily that doing anything that appeared to be uh, supporting the, what seemed to be the political aims of some of the NUM leadership would weaken the chances of winning the strike rather than actually uh, losing it. So there was, yeah, of course, there were calls for uh, a general strike. There weren't too many calls for a general strike, though, in the general council of the TUC. There were quite a few calls for the people giving leaflets outside. I was going to give you an insight of the left in Parliament. We're not talking about a huge number of members of parliament, but as is usual in politics, uh, there are some who will take uh, uh, the lead at extremist position, and others who fearful of being, uh, of giving the appearance of a lack of enthusiasm, commitment, solidarity, will drift along with them, the people that I call the ratepayers. And the consequence of that was that every week, every single week at the Parliamentary Labour Party, there was a demand that we have a debate on the coal mining strike. Well, we had a couple in the course of the strike, which I counselled against, but eventually said, all right, let's prove the point that I'm making to you and have a debate. And we had a debate, and with great courage, uh, Stan Orm, our energy spokesman, a, a trade unionist of huge experience and with high respect in the trade union labour movement, was battered in the debate, but very manfully he was willing to stand up for it. And of course, all the debates did was further focus on the Labour Party and the alleged support that it was given to violent conduct on the picket line and the outrageous conduct by the NUM and so on and so on and so forth. 
And uh, the result of those debates uh, was negative and never positive. So they, uh, uh, the ultra-left's desire uh, to have parliamentary debates was just appalling tactics in the circumstances. And the reason we had them was I just wanted to demonstrate that to them. Then another instance, and I think that this really sums it up. In the November of 1984, there was a tragic uh, and appalling incident where a couple of young miners on strike who happened to work in a pit in my constituency, they weren't my constituents, but they went to a, a, a bridge over the A465, um, the main heads of the valleys road. And through a concrete block off the bridge, it hit a taxi that was returning from taking a working miner uh, to work, and it killed the young cab driver. Now, it was a, a devastating tragedy. And uh, the men eventually gave themselves up, uh, responding to appeals from the South Wales NUM. They didn't have to be hunted down by the police. They gave themselves up. They were tried and they had long sentences uh, for the crime that they committed. After all this had taken place, Tony Benn introduced in the House of Commons a 10-minute rule bill, which is a technical device for getting attention to a subject. 10-minute rule bills never become law. They only ever get second readings. They never get to a committee stage. So they, were, they are a publicity uh, measure that is often justified, but on this occasion, his 10-minute rule bill was calling for the retrospective clemency to be shown to these young miners so that they were immediately released from jail. He had appeals from the men's families, from the South Wales NUM. Kim Howells, who was then the uh, research director of the NUM in South Wales and subsequently an MP and a minister, uh, previously a member of the Communist Party, went to Ben and pleaded with him not to draw further attention to the issue and distress the families and uh, uh, complicate and compromise the situation of these two young men who'd been convicted by doing this. He ignored all that. He ignored all the appeals and went ahead with the 10-minute rule bill. And naturally, it had the impact on public opinion and, of course, was taken into account by judges hearing the appeal of these young men against their sentencing. Now, anything as destructive as that, if done ignorantly, would have a measure of excuse. You could attribute it to over-enthusiasm. This is a man in his 60s, an experienced parliamentarian, uh, ignoring the advice and appeals of the people most directly involved in this tragedy and going ahead, why? In order to demonstrate the purity of his intentions in seeking to uphold the case for these young minors who, although guilty of a terrible crime, were actually, as every rational person would recognize, the victims of circumstances. And uh, his desire to demonstrate his sanctity completely overruled everything else. Absolutely unforgivable. Unforgivable. Now, you've so clearly talked about this 
traumatic time for South Wales. One other aspect of it, of course, we heard from John Edmonds about how the whole idea that the miners could rely on other workers was, was a doomed strategy. Of course, in South Wales, it was particularly a problem because, of course, you had the steel industry. Yes. You had the workers at Llanwern yes. desperate to ensure that their steelworks continued production. Uh, the same was happening at Ravenscraig in Scotland. What did you feel about the way in which it wasn't just the mining community, but the mining yes. community was being pitched against the steel workers? It wasn't just a matter of feelings. It was a matter of action. The leadership of the South Wales mine workers had, through the director of the NCB in South Wales, a marvellous man, happens to be from my hometown and a dear friend of mine, the late Philip Weeks, to negotiate with the British Steel Corporation to allow a supply of coal to continue to go into Sandwell Steelworks and into Portalbot Steelworks, gigantic steelworks, in order to ensure that the furnaces never closed down. Because, of course, for the steelworks, that is catastrophic. They even kept the blast furnaces going during their own steel strike in 1981, which lasted many weeks. They had all of that tuition in the disaster that could be inflicted for years and years and years on the steel industry, and everybody depended upon it, uh, if they allowed uh, any underperformance uh, in the blast furnaces. Scargill overruled that, forbade them from making the deal, accused them of being traitors and all the other words he could lay his tongue to. I then intervened secretly in order to try to make an arrangement which would sustain the supply of coal. And thanks to Philip Weeks and sensible regional management of the British Steel Corporation, that was achieved. So the, steel, so the, the blast furnaces never fail in Port Talbot, never closed down. Uh, had they done so, the steel industry could have been written off in South Wales. But here were thousands upon thousands of jobs, something like 16,000 directly employed in the works and at least another 20,000 of people dependent in a variety of ways on uh, work related to supplying the steelworks and contractors and all the rest of it. Scargill was willing to completely brush that aside and the feelings of the steelworkers uh, who worked of course very closely with the South Wales NUM on a day-to-day -day basis simply because of the relationship between their industries, their thoughts were absolutely unprintable at the time. And indeed, as the strike was drawing to its close, close, and I spoke to the NUM lodges in my constituency, I'm talking about mass meetings, uh, one of the reasons why by that time they'd become entirely disillusioned with Scargill was the way in which I was able to relate to them, and they knew it was the truth, the full story of what uh, they'd uh, been uh, saved from by ensuring that a small supply, sufficient supply of coal, went into the steelworks 
which their daily bread depended upon in supplying them with coking coal. Uh, now, Neil Kinnock, that clearly, and I want to hear uh, John Edmonds' opinion on this, that uh, way in which worker was pitched against yeah. worker was, of course, a gift to Margaret Thatcher, wasn't it? The fact that steel worker was fighting mine worker. You, you couldn't really have um, thought up a, um, a strategy that would be more advantageous uh, to Margaret Thatcher at that stage in the dispute. Uh, well, that's absolutely true. I mean, the, uh, the divisiveness of, of decisions like that. Any dispute in a major industry has to be surrounded by a series of agreements and protocols with other people who are affected. Just frankly, to neutralise the possibility that there are going to be public divisions and the central dispute is going to be the subject of criticism. Uh, and that didn't happen. I mean, as uh, I think we've both said, the amount of contact that actually took place between the NUM national leadership, much better at regional and area level actually, but a national uh, leadership of the NUM and other trade unions was too small, frankly, for the size of this dispute. I mean, the whole of the trade union, but we didn't know to the extent of the hazard we were in until late on, but the whole of the future of the trade union movement was at risk here. So it was in everybody's interest that there was close cooperation. And of course, attempts were made by the TUC later on uh, to broker a settlement. And in a better world, that would have been successful. Stand on too. I mean, I know. Yes. yes. Uh, be before we just go to the closing scenes of the strike, one thing that struck me, Neil Kinnock, was that, of course, y you shared something with Arthur Scargill. You were both being vilified by the news media and by the front pages of the national newspapers. And we have here just a selection of, of, of some of them. And uh, we look, obviously, at these deep divisions that there were, worker against worker. And uh, I made the point, and I wonder whether you would agree with me. Look at the front pages. You seemed increasingly anguished, increasingly almost powerless as Scargill heads for defeat. That's certainly what we see from some of these newspaper headlines. You see, beginning your calling for a ballot, we've even got Tony Blair, um, the future Labour Prime Minister, joining in the demands for a ballot. At uh, my request. <laughs> at your request. That was what the Tony Blair should speak in the debate. Yeah. Um, there you are uh, having a go at Scargill. Um, it's seen, though, humiliation, that's the Daily Mail, you see, that you're humiliated time and time again, that it's a walkover for Scargill and you're being humiliated. Then, of course, we had this great row, which we haven't mentioned, the way in which yeah. the uh, Miners' Union went to Libya to get some money um, uh, and the outrage over that. Um, then we have, um, as we've heard from John Edmonds, the question of, of whether or not the trade unions would get involved. And then there's Arthur's army in revolt, um, uh, stand back, he's losing. This is the thought that Scargill was losing. And of course, we hear here, we see here this hangman's noose. Now, that was a particular moment because, of course, Norman Willis, then the general secretary of the TUC, he'd taken over from Len Murray, and he's in South Wales at Aberavon, and they lower a noose uh, down in front of him. And of course, you um, turned up at, uh, and I think this was the only time you shared a platform with Arthur Scargill, and uh, the cartoons were there suggesting that that you should have a noose hung around your neck. 
What do you think when you look back at those newspaper front pages? Well, the whole thing was horrific, obviously, and uh, one of those front pages uh, really uh, encapsulates the attitude taken by uh, most of the press, the tabloids particularly, but also the murder press more generally and the Telegraph. And that is, um, when men were drifting back to work, that was supposed to be, as one of those front pages said, a snub to me. It had absolutely nothing to do with me. And if challenged, the journalist who wrote that would say, well, I wasn't responsible for writing the headline. That's always, that was the subs, that was the editor, that was somebody else. But uh, what uh, the whole dispute, and Scargill in particular, managed to do was to make a gift of trade union powerlessness and labor leadership embarrassment to uh, Margaret Thatcher so that whatever else was going on in the world and however many other successes we managed to secure, including huge advances in the European elections, huge advances in the local elections and so on and so on and so on, whatever else was going on, there was always a free hit for the Conservatives on the trade union movement and on the Labour Party and the Labour leadership. And that was the inevitable consequence, even when it became clear that I was saying, you must have a ballot or you're doomed to defeat. And even when, uh, I suppose some knew about it eventually, within weeks of this occurring, Stan Orm and I made interventions in order to try and provide a basis for negotiation about the future pit closure program that would have left the NUM at least with an honorable draw and at least with protection for some of the collieries. And I'm absolutely certain with commitment by the NUM leadership, that position could have been reached if there'd been any inclination by Scargill to undertake negotiations on the basis of an alternative way of making judgments about when pits became unviable and economic. But of course, he completely scorned the efforts to do that, even after Stan Orm had secured the agreement of McGregor to coming to the table to negotiate on such a program which Stan Ohm and I drew up. Of course, there was also the later possibility that arose when the pit deputies union, yes. NACODs, uh, entered into the dispute. They, in the end, were offered um, a, a deal allowing a degree of independent arbitration yes. on future pit closures. Did you think that that um, moment in the autumn was a moment when there might have been a settlement? Yes, and extraordinarily, Peter McNestry, who was the president of the uh, president of the National Association of Colliery, Overman, Deputies and Shotfires, the foreman's uh, union in, uh, in the coal industry, and of course all of them former working miners uh, with a huge background and commitment to the industry. When they negotiated their agreement covering the pit closure program, and did it, of course, because they needed the protection of a rational system of deciding on pit closures, because it wasn't just NUM members who would be affected by pit closures. 
uh, and did it on the basis of a national ballot with an overwhelming majority for going on strike, which is virtually unthinkable for colliery overman deputies and shot fires, the people who kept the pits at least workable, even when nobody else was going to work. When they did that, I thought the possibilities of a breakthrough really existed. Because if the NUM, uh, if the NACODs had managed to secure that agreement from the National Coal Board and the government, then if Scargillan had any sense, he could have said, what's good enough for the Overman and deputies is good enough for us. We're talking about the same pits, the same criteria, so we want to secure by negotiation the same agreement. He completely scorned that as well. So here was a coal agreement made between a coal union and in good repute and uh, the uh, NCB with the endorsement, reluctant endorsement, but endorsement of the government. And that opportunity existed in the late autumn of 1984. And instead of that, Scargill made the miners endure another four or five months of awful sacrifice. John Edmonds, that was a moment, wasn't it, that uh, pit deputies' uh, uh, negotiations. They went on, of course, at the conciliation service ACAS. They got that promise of an independent level of review. Did you, within the rest of the union movement, think that that was the moment when, uh, if, if Arthur Scargill had any sense that he was going to go for uh, a negotiated end to the dispute? Well, it looked like the moment when a negotiated settlement could be reached. Uh, and, of course, the, uh, the TUC felt very strongly that this was the moment of greatest possibility. Um, uh, the government was wobbling. Uh, the government wasn't too sure exactly what would happen if there was a continuing dispute with NACODs at the same time as the AUM. Uh, there were lots of disaster scenarios being written, and it looked as if the government was in a mood to allow McGregor a small amount of negotiating room. And of course, that could have been the moment. But uh, one colleague in the TUC said that the reaction from Arthur at that stage had been that he was not going to agree to the definition of exhausted pits while there was one shovel full of coal in the pit. Now, I don't know where that argument came from, but the person who was saying it was not badly disposed to the NUM, anything but. But it does show that the opportunity for negotiation was in fact non-existent because one side was just not going to negotiate. You can't negotiate a definition of exhaustive pits on the basis of you can't find any coal dust on the floor of the pit. I mean, now it's the, just nonsense. Now, the, the TUC did try itself, didn't it? We, well, that, this, was, this was part of that particular process. I mean, NACODs involved the TUC. The TUC, for the first time, was properly involved. They were sort of sitting outside ACAS. You, you, you know how the processes work. And um, the TUC was not looking for a solution to NACOD's dispute. They were looking for a solution to the miners' strike. And uh, that's what failed, frankly. And in the end, NACOD's was effectively given, well, you go and settle them. Now, 
let's look at the final scene of the dispute, because, of course, it all became the return to work. Uh, we in the broadcast media are often criticised for becoming the cheerleaders for the return to work, because the new faces, the men who were deciding to go back to work, they were the heroes for the national press, and that, of course, flowed through to the broadcast media. And my job, I can remember, on Monday mornings was to report how many more men had turned up for work. And uh, what I think is so striking now is to hear the stories of um, men in their 50s and 60s who were young miners and said, we were in the pit canteen and we used to watch those news bulletins. And I can remember one Monday morning when 2,000 uh, men had gone back to work. That was the figure that the coal board was giving. What did you think, Neil Kinnock, as that dispute played itself out? Yeah. Uh, because, of course, when it got to halfway, when Mrs Thatcher could claim that half the miners were back at work, she could claim victory. Indeed, that's exactly the process that they went through. The drift back to work was much slower and smaller than was advertised in the press. But, of course, uh, that whole representation of the drift back was assisted by the fact that, inevitably, when people started going back to work in their threes and fours, uh, the colliery was picketed. That meant there was an opportunity for the television cameras and journalists to descend. The NUM had taken the attitude that they didn't want any cameras on their side of the picket line, so consequently, the cameras and the reporting was done from, if you like, the scabs side of the lines. And the consequence was the impression could be given day on day, week on week, of uh, a trickle that turned into a torrent, that turned into a flood, that absolutely overwhelmed. And all it started out with was tiny numbers of men in utter, de uh, 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 utter desperation, usually in huge debt, and losing the support of their families. Uh, saying, I just cannot tolerate this any longer. Uh, I've got to start earning a wage again. And being wi willing to withstand what they knew would be, they knew would be years of criticism, isolation, and worse in the communities from which they came. So when we enter those first two months of 1985, it seemed to the media, it was just a question of time. It must yes. presumably have seemed to both of you yes. only a question of time. We, we know that it was the South Wales NUM which actually took the lead and said there's got to be a return to work without a negotiated settlement. We've just got to go back to work. In an orderly fashion. And did you support that oh, yes. South Wales yes, initiative? Yes, absolutely. I knew about it from... Uh, mid-January, because I was in very, very regular contact, particularly with Kim Howells. We used to have, uh, on the morning of my surgeries in my constituency, we used to have breakfast in her hotel uh, and talk about the conduct of affairs. This had gone on since before Christmas, mm. and it was a very regular occurrence by uh, the January, February of 1984. Uh, so we used to go through the possible scenarios, and it was clear to me that uh, all that remained for the South Wales NUM to do is to ensure, and they had this, the complete agreement of their senior officials. Uh, men of great character, there's no question at all about that, 
who wanted to ensure that, secondly, there would be an orderly return to work, the drift would be stopped, the union could survive, even after the uh, devastating legal attacks and the ruinous financial pe penalties levied against the union and indeed against individuals, that if they could secure uh, a, a date for the return to work and that everybody would abide by that date, there would be a degree of cohesion and order and cogency which would at least protect the existence of the union. John Edmonds, you as a union leader, would, would you see what the South Wales miners proposed, that return to work without a negotiated settlement and an orderly return and the preservation of the NUM, which is clearly what the South Wales miners wanted, was that the only logical end to the dispute? Well, yes, and it was greeted with, I think, throughout the trade union movement with a great deal of relief. I mean, this is a curious thing to say. But I mean, this, is, this was a period of such misery, such conflict in people's minds as well as between individuals. And of course, the other thing, feeling was the great foreboding because no one thought that the government was going to deal with this in any gracious fashion. This was going to be a great victory celebrated, not just over the NUM, but over the trade union movement. And we had to sort of guess at what was gonna happen next and some of the worst guesses came true. Now, my final two questions. Uh, Neil Kinnock, of course, we now hear from so many of Arthur Scargill's supporters that, of course, he emerged from the dispute as a working class hero. He's the only union leader who stood up uh, to Margaret Thatcher. I want to ask John Edmonds about that, but what about your opinion that there is Scargill, the working class hero, the only union leader that was prepared to stand up against Margaret Thatcher? It depends where you go. I know that if you go to my area in South Wales and many other parts of what used to be the coalfield, they despise the way in which they were misled by the Scargill leadership. Uh, they will say, uh, and honorably say, they felt they had no alternative but to strive and to strike and to struggle. But at the same time, the way in which they were told lies about the coal stocks, they were told lies about the attitude being taken by the government. They were absolutely misled about the scale of the strike uh, and uh, the impression given all the time that they were on the lip of victory in speech after speech, statement after statement. And that terrible abuse of their loyalty, their solidarity, their raw courage by a leadership that led them to disaster uh, makes them resentful and demoralized. They had that reinforced by their experience after the strike. Because as John says, the government in the wake of the strike gave no quarter. In my own case, I had a very big colliery, Oakdale Colliery, which we managed to sustain because it had a very workable coal and an immensely uh, capable uh, workforce, universally respected. Uh, right through till 1989. But in order to sustain the colliery, they needed a small investment, about five million pounds, to strike through at new coal. That was the price of sustaining that 900 jobs and everything that went with it. And the NCB completely refused 
to provide any additional investment. Now, the men knew that at the same time, gigantic amounts of capital equipment had been written off and left underground in pits that had been abandoned and closed, and that it, the, what it was at issue was not the resources or willingness of the NCB to take terrible financial losses. It was their political obligation from those who were leading them not to provide the necessary investment to ensure the viability of a coal mine. And so what you had was an affliction of gigantic unemployment, demoralization, impoverishment, hitting that community and hundreds of other communities throughout the whole of the United Kingdom coalfields. John Edmonds, I must also put that question to you, because you would, in the view of some Scargill supporters, be in the dock. Uh, you know, you're a, a union leader who betrayed uh, Arthur Scargill, the working class hero. Do, do you feel any guilt? Yes, I do, um, because we lost the strike, uh, and that always brings guilt. But there's one remark that was made to me which sticks in my mind, and this was about the autumn uh, of the strike. And I was, by that time, I was out of the energy industries and I was in the public services and I was in a negotiating meeting with a, an official who was then a senior official of the TNG. He now has other jobs, so best not to identify him. And he made a remark to me, he said, when I look at the television, Every time I see a miner interviewed, we're winning. Every time I see Arthur interviewed, we're losing. And that was, I think, a few of much of the trade union movement. The miners could win it, but not with Arthur. Finally, I should explain that I'm firmly in the if-only camp. If only there'd been a negotiated settlement, we might still have a coal industry. Uh, of course, the final nail in the coffin, if you like, uh, was after Labour's defeat in 1992, in the general election of 1992, because Michael Heseltine refuses to give loan support uh, for new uh, um, coal-fired power stations. Another 30 pits close in, in the mid-90s. And I remember talking to Kevin Hunt, the head of industrial relations at the coal board, and he said to me that, uh, Heseltine was adamant that there wouldn't be any new uh, uh, public funding for uh, coal-fired stations, and he said the reason was that the coal industry or could never uh, guarantee de deliveries of coal, that the uh, power stations could never get a guarantee of delivery. Now, look, we lost, didn't we? We lost our uh, lead in deep mining. We lost the lead that we had in clean burning of coal. Uh, who knows, we, we, we could be leading the world now in the development of shale gas. Where do you both end up after 30 years? First of all, Neil Kinnock, are you an if only man? Yes, except that the possibility of the NUM led by Scargill negotiating and securing a sustainable outcome for British coal mining is virtually nil. He would have had to be toppled or at least displaced by a more democratic council in order to secure that position. You see, the people of whom you spoke earlier, who still speak of Scargill as a proletarian hero, are the people who despise and describe as a traitor Peter McNestry, 
the president of the Colliery Overman Deputies and Shot Fires, who negotiated a settlement that could have secured a rational program for the future of the coal industry. But if only That's how detached from reality they are. I also reflect that not only do we lose all of those attributes of British coal mining, we now face, we are told, the possibility of an energy crisis simply because investment has not taken place in power stations, whether coal-fired or oil-fired or nuclear power stations, over decades. And that strike, by all reasonable reckoning, cost £47 billion in today's money and was only affordable because Margaret Thatcher had access to gigantic, fresh oil revenues which cushioned the impact of what was otherwise the biggest single waste, gigantic waste of public money in the Central Electricity Generating Board, in the NCB, in the loss of revenues, in the writing off of capital equipment, in the policing costs, in everything else that would be inexcusable and unforgivable for any government in any other circumstances. So finally, John Edmonds, you've got the last word. Are you an if-only man? If only there'd been a negotiated settlement, we could still have a coal industry today? Well, we don't, we'd have a bigger trade union movement. Yeah. Margaret Thatcher's uh, period of office would have no doubt been shorter. All sorts of things could have happened which were would have been very good. But by and large, I'm not too interested in arguing about history in the subjunctive. Um, we are where we are. And uh, the trade union movement has to find a different way forward. That's the challenge. There's no point in saying it would have been better if, because it wasn't. And my God, it was horrible. Well, as an if-only man, I've certainly been put in my place. I'd like to thank uh, John Edmonds and Lord Kinnock, Neil Kinnock, uh, for their reflections on the miners' strike of 1984-5.